as we begin, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4? I'm going to, I'm going to continue our series on discipleship. Uh, this is our second lesson on it. Uh, the first lesson was two weeks ago. If you missed it, I encourage you to um, go to our either website and listen to it on the audio or sign up for our um, podcast to see it there. The, uh, the concept I wanted to, for us to consider today is that we are to grow together as disciples of Jesus. That's our goal as Christians. And uh, today we're going to cover a lot of things in a, as they say, a 30,000 feet sort of view, overview, that we're going to develop as we go on with our series. So look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read starting in verse 11. And we're going to read down to verse 16. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. What do you need, Caleb? Okay. All right. Um, Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, and he there is Christ, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love." So here we have, in summary, the entire life of the church and the entire life of Christians in the church. The goal of life is stated in these verses that we, we have here. We saw that the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned us as His church to make disciples of all nations. We looked at the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, and we could have gone to other passages as well. And... As your pastor, as part of this church, I would love for us to become better at doing the very thing that must be the reason for our existence as the Church of Jesus Christ, which is making disciples of every nation. I believe that becoming uh, disciple-making disciples is what needs to happen to us as a church. And as we grow in being disciple-making disciples, we're going to be incredibly blessed because we're going to be doing the very thing that God has recreated us in Jesus Christ to do. And that's really the impetus behind this series. In our first lesson, we considered the word disciple. We, we had some brainstorming, but then we spent the, the rest of the time considering that word disciple. And we did that throughout the life of Greek literature to see how the meaning of the word developed it, and we concluded that a disciple is a learner who learns. A learner who learns from a master, both by what the master teaches and by what the master does. That's really what the word disciple 
means in, in general. I want to start today with a question that we considered last week, but we wanted to look in more detail, not in two weeks ago. What is discipleship? And I'm going to provide four different definitions from the, narrow to, from the broadest to the narrowest as, so that we can start thinking about what discipleship means. And discipleship, as we're going to see here, uh, means something very specific. First one, somebody has suggested that discipleship is doing life together as people who have been redeemed by Jesus and are following him every moment of their lives. It's one way to think about discipleship. Another, another definition is this, teaching biblical precepts while modeling and guiding others toward living righteously as followers of Jesus Christ. It's a little more precise. Nine Marks Ministry suggests that discipleship is the intentional encouragement and training of disciples of Jesus on the basis of deliberate, loving relationships. My own take at defining discipleship is this, the constant process in which a Christian is helped by the covenant community to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ so that he becomes progressively conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and can in turn disciple others. Well, fuller than the other three there, and I think it does capture uh, what discipleship is. But in all these definitions, we can see that discipleship involves relationships and learning. That's the common uh, gist, the common factor here between all these, these definitions is that discipleship includes relationships and includes learning. And discipleship is centered on communicating what the Bible teaches. And this is very, 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 very important. In order to be discipleship, as in the discipleship of the Great Commission, it must be centered in communicating what the Bible teaches. So, teaching somebody to cook is great, but that's not discipleship as the Bible defines discipleship. Right? Teaching somebody to shoot, more and more necessary, but it's not, there we go, I know I could get a, uh, an amen from Tim here. Uh, but it's not discipleship as the Bible defines discipleship because it is communicating what the Bible teaches. And this communication is not always through lectures, but always with what the Bible says in mind. You cannot disciple someone biblically apart from what the Bible teaches, the content, the scriptures. Um, if you can keep a marker there in Ephesians 4, look at uh, Psalm 78 for a second. Psalm 78. Look at verses 1 through 8. Seventy-eight verses one through eight. It says a contemplation of Asaph. Give okay. As I read it, and it's really long, I wanted you to try to count how many generations are involved in what we're reading here, in the passing of truth from one generation to another. Okay. A contemplation of Asaph. Give ear of my people to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. 
I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. And dark sayings of old means just complicated sayings of old, not dark as in the art of the dark magic in um, Harry Potter or anything like that. Verse 3, which we had heard and known and our fathers have told us. Will not hide them from the, their children, telling to the congregation, to the generation to come, the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in, in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known them to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So how many generations are involved there? So we have three, you have six. What else? Four. Four. Five. five. Now people are just counting. It's, it's, uh, all right, so we have the fathers to us, that's as far as the perspective of the psalm, to the generation to come, to their children. And what they are doing is that they are passing on the wonderful works of God that God has done so that they can set their hope in God. So fathers, us, generation to come, their children. So there's, just in this, here we have four different um, generations. And the psalm says that if we, the one generation doesn't do the job of passing on to the next generation, that it's just the truth um, ends, at least for that particular group of, of people. And we see that so truthfully in Judges 2 verse 10, probably the saddest verse in the whole of the Bible, where it says that, that the, because the previous generation did not tell them about the works of God, that generation did not know God. And that's the basis for the rest of the book of Judges, describing a generation that did not know God. Only one generation removed from the wanderings in the desert. Just one generation removed from the generation that saw the pillar of fire, uh, uh, the pillar of smoke during the day and the fire at night leading them in uh, the wilderness. So this idea of passing on is intrinsic to discipleship. Look at this other passage. Oops. Now, it's too late. I'll, I'll read the passage, and you figure out how many people. I mean. uh, in the context of training pastors, 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul is talking to Timothy. This is the last letter. Some scholars think that is within weeks of his beheading that Paul wrote this letter. So the, he, the end is very near. He knows that uh, he's about to die. He calls Timothy to be willing to die, and in preparation for that, said, train other people. So that the message doesn't die with us. And it says there in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you have Paul receiving it from Christ, passing on to Timothy, who is going to pass on to other faithful men, who in turn are going to pass on to others as well. So you can see that, that that is part of discipling people, is passing on the truth of God from one generation to another, from one person to another. Uh, it's important that the second Timothy passage is not generationally, it's just from one person to the next. 
could be taken generationally, but it's not necessarily generationally like in Psalm 78. And Paul summarizes that in, in Colossians 3.16 when it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. It says the word of God dwell you in you richly, the word of Christ, which is the Bible. And, and then the, the two ING words describe how that word dwells in you richly. It dwells in you richly as you pour it into other people. So let the word of God, of Christ, dwell in you richly, richly by how? By what? By doing what? By admonishing, by teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing grace, with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So you can see the discipleship involves relationship and learning, and that learning is always based on the word of God. Any questions or comments before we continue? All right. Another question that we need to ask and answer as we, th- as we think about discipleship is what we started to answer the last time we, we talked about this. And that is the question, what is a disciple? We did answer part of it. Now, how about in the biblical context? What is a disciple? And this is very important for us to keep in mind. Every Christian is a disciple. There's no, those two words are synonymous. Every Christian is a disciple. In Acts 11, verse 26, talking about uh, the context here is Barnabas going to Antioch and then figuring out who is going to be the pastor of this, this congregation. He says, I know this guy. And he goes to Tarsus to get Paul and bring Paul back to pastor alongside Barnabas in the church there in Antioch, and and that's what this verse says. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So a Christian and a disciple is the same person. You don't become a Christian and then later on become a disciple. These are uh, the same person. As, As a Christian... Disciple is something you are, not something you become. Does it make, do you see the difference there, the importance there? You are a disciple, period. You don't become one. So, disciple, Christian, believer, follower of, of Christ, all these titles are the most basic titles for a person who has been redeemed by Jesus. They, they're not... Um, you, you don't... They're not different levels of the game. This is the, the, the most, at the most basic, this is who we are, the moment that we are, we place our faith in Jesus Christ. So they're not titles for the advance in the faith. They are titles given to a person that at the very second that they believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation. So a disciple, uh, every Christian is a disciple. Also, a disciple of Jesus loves him supremely. Every Christian is a disciple, and a disciple of Jesus loves him supremely, which means that every Christian is described in the Bible as one who loves Christ supremely. You find that, as we saw last time, in Luke chapter 14, in uh, verses 26, 27, and 33. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters... Yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. Okay, we already saw that, which means that you cannot be, what? A Christian. Because the disciple and a Christian are the same person. Verse 27, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after my 
me cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he, has, that he has cannot be my disciple. So, and then you start thinking, oh man, but there are moments or there are a lot of my life that I don't, I'm not in that way. Uh, am, am I not a Christian? Perhaps. But also, remember, a lot of times the Bible gives us categories and says, if you're outside of this category, you need to come into this category. Is there a person who truly believes in Christ and there are moments in their lives where they're not supremely in love with Him? Yes. But that's a dangerous place to be because that category doesn't exist biblically. You have to realign yourself with what the Bible says concerning you. So, on the basis of what we have said so far, then we can add a fifth definition of discipleship. Discipleship is the mutual helping of one another in the church of Jesus Christ in order to become more like the one who saved us and whom we follow. Now, what have we added here in this definition that we hadn't been included? Okay, so that was, yes, that wasn't uh, explicit, was implicit in the other ones. It's really the idea of mutual. The other ones always... Was the other ones that give the impressions one direction. Here, but the Bible teaches that discipleship is mutual. Everybody's a disciple. And most people should be a discipler as well. So there's, there's mutuality happening there. So discipleship involves discipling and being discipled. That's what the mutual is. And most Christians should find themselves in both categories. Not just in one, but in both categories. Now, there are those that are young in the faith should spend some time in the being discipled category for a little while, but that's not where they should stay forever or even for very long. As we continue to, this, to ask, answer the question, what is a disciple? A disciple of Jesus loves other disciples of Jesus. So a basic characteristic of being a disciple, which is a basic characteristic of being a Christian, is that you love those who are Christian. Regardless. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all we know, but this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one another. So Jesus says, What is the primary identification of my, being my disciple as far as the world is concerned? Is your love one another. So Jesus put that in terms of the most basic way that the world knows that we are his disciples, is love for one another. So this implies that discipleship is a display of this mutual love. And we want to see each other growing in Jesus Christ because that's the best thing for, for them. Any questions or comments before we continue? Yes, Andrew. I mean, having this discussion with people over the years about a disciple is a Christian, and mm -hmm. that means that a Christian actually follows Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's oftentimes objected, oh, that sounds a lot like works righteousness. It sounds like we have to do things to be a Christian. How do we simply explain that this isn't works righteousness? By saying this is not work ri works <laughs> righteousness, um, I think a key verse is Ephesians 2.10, where, you know, following some of the, the classic verse for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, Ephesians 8 and 9, says that that happened so that you be recreated unto something. 
is unto good works. So if that's not present, then it's unlikely that verse 8 and 9 are all true of you, because that is a necessary consequence of salvation uh, by grace alone, through faith alone. So a necessary consequence is not a cause, but it is a necessary consequence. It's not there. Then if A is true, then B must be. B is not causing A, but if for A to be true, you have to have the presence of B as well. So uh, that, that's where I would go, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 there. Any other comments or questions? All right. Uh, so discipleship involves learning and loving God's word. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Uh, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So discipleship involves learning and loving God's word. Discipleship involves pursuing peace, and edifying one another. Romans 14, 19 says, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. And if you look at the context of Romans 14, is, is the context of the relationship between Christians. Discipleship involves bearing with one another. Again, in the context that talks about relationship between Christians, in Colossians 3, 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, as the elect of God... Holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So that's the verb, put on tender mercies. How? By bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Discipleship involves encouraging holy living. The Holy Spirit makes makes that very clear in Hebrews 3 verses 12 and 13, where there he says that we need other people to help us see our blind spots. Because blind spots are this, that. We can't see them. There's sin in our lives that we can't see, and we need others to help us hit, live holy lives. Uh, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 say, Be aware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Discipleship involves lighting a fire for love and good works in our hearts. So helping each other have this fire in their hearts for good works and for love. That's why that's what Hebrews 10 24 says. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Let's consider, let's think of one another. Let's observe one another. Let's meditate on one another. Let's know one another so that we can stir up love and good work. Interesting that this word stir up there in Hebrews 10, 24 is often used of sibling fighting, siblings fighting with one another. And a sibling, not that you've done that yourself, but you could know somebody that did that. A sibling kind of golding the other sibling to get him in trouble to stir up trouble with the other person. Now, I know, Anna, you never, that never happened with you and your sisters, right? Or, or Natalie, you and Nick never have. But other people do. 
right? And that's the idea, to kind of be in each other's business to the point they stir them up, but not to get in trouble, but to love and good works. So this is what discipleship involves. Any questions about these five things that are on this slide as far as what discipleship involves? All right. The final point in trying to answer the question, what is discipleship, is the goal of discipleship. And that's where we're going to start looking at Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 13 of Ephesians 4. So whatever is happening in verses 11 and 12 is happening till, in verse 13, we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So verse 13 gives us the goal of what's going on here in this passage. And we see there are three goals. The unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. So discipleship should cause us to be more united to each other because of our unity with Christ. Uh, maturity is another goal of discipleship. Uh, uh, immature Christian is not a good thing. Like, uh, 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 do you know what the Bible describes, how the Bible describes an immature Christian? Another way of calling an immature Christian in the Bible? Rick? Uh, like a baby in the milk. Yeah, in a bad way, yeah. But what else? Unskilled, yeah. Lukewarm. Well, that's more like a non-Christian at all, right? Uh, Adam? Weaker, brother. This is the, uh, that's the one. Good, Adam. You read my mind. Even though all these other questions are also true that I had not thought about, that's the one I was thinking about. Weaker brother. So that's what an immature Christian is, is a weaker brother. So you see, there's nothing to do with age or how long you've been professing Christ. It's not growing and your knowledge of the Scriptures, in living that out, and in becoming more like Jesus Christ. And then the third is related, growing into being all that Christ has for us, the fullness that comes from Christ. So that's the goal of discipleship. That's what we're going as we disciple one another. So we could say then that discipleship and sanctification go hand in hand. Because that's, those are the things we're becoming as we grow in Christ as well, as we're sanctified or we could even say that the two terms are talking about the same process. Growing, uh, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 t- tells us, uh, being transformed from glory to glory in the image of Jesus Christ. Any questions or, or comments before we continue? All right, so let's ask then ourselves, why should a church and its members practice discipleship? In other words, why is it necessary I'll entertain some answers on that. Sonia? Yeah, but that's not really exciting. <laughs> that's true. Yes. That's my first reason. Yeah. What else? Tilly? The testimony to the world. Testimony to the world. All right. What else? Rick? It was Christ's example. All right. Andrew? Okay, so the, that's what the church is here for, the main means to accomplish that. Jonas? So we can grow in Christ. So we can grow in Christ, yes. 
Renee. Okay, primary way that we can love each other, Levi. Because if we don't, the church ceases to exist. Yes. All right. So uh, my on my paper here, the first one is, is because God says so, but it's not exciting. So I'm not. I'm, it should be a primary motivation, but we don't get super excited about that. Um, that doesn't bring that satisfaction that it should uh, bring. Um, so. That's why I wanted to think of others. You know, that's the primary reason why we should do stuff is because God tells us to, right? That should be our the primary motivation. Sometimes the only motivation we need to do that. Now, this past week I was asking myself as I was thinking about these things for today, why work so hard to grow in Christ in this life when we will completely be glorified at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why work so hard now? If it's, it's going to happen anyway in the coming, why bother? Why, why is the regular season important? Uh, sorry, Heather, it's just a sports thing. Uh, why is that so we focus on the now when, when Jesus comes back, and the, as the Bible says, in twinkling of an eye, we're going to become fully like Jesus, morally like Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Because, I'm telling you, Following Christ is hard. Doing the things that God wants us to do is not easy. And if everyone tells you that, they're, that, they're, they're, that the description of their lives is the song Blessed Assurance, I don't know. I would have my doubts in, in, in that affirmation. So why go through this? Well, the answer is that the discipling process is a means by which we arrive at the day in which we'll be glorified. The, the, the way that we get from here to then is through this growing in Jesus Christ. That's what gets us to the end. That's what God uses to persevere, cause us to persevere to the end. Because discipleship is a means that God uses to preserve us till the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Holy Spirit says exactly that in Hebrews chapter 10. Starting in verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as it is the manner of some, by exhorting one another. And look at this. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. And then if you go to Hebrews 10 and follow, follow there, verse 26 and following, he describes... What happens to those who are not following these let us? And the, 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 they, they fall away from Christ. It, the, 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 those that are not being sanctified, those that are not involved in this process, fall away to Christ. This very process is what God has appointed to get us to the end uh, by His grace and His sovereignty. So the stakes are very high when it comes to discipleship. I hope we get that, that the stakes are very high when we're talking about discipleship. Any questions or comments before we continue? Doug, really loud because I, I hear he's gone. He's going. Yeah. God loves us. And so discipleship is, is God's way 
Correct. Yeah. for that is each other you know it's not just let go and let God it's not just looking for some sort of a zapping experience it's this process that so that we can grow in being convinced that walking with Christ is much better than walking with in the ways of the Gentiles or that's just not the way I would say the sinners before they came to Christ and then in Ephesians 4 20 through 24 he describes that change process in real life, the putting off and putting on, because that's not who we are anymore, right? We are growing to be more like who we have been declared to be. And Lois? You said um, that discipling, uh, doing it because God tells us to, is pretty boring. Yes. I mean, that's usually how we think about it, right? And yeah. my thought... Mom, why should I do this? Because I told you so. <laughs> Right? It's, it's not My thought is that in, um, in doing what God has asked us to do, we are um, in obedience to Him mm-hmm. and submission to Him. And when we get it right, when we do those things that we know we're supposed to do, there, there is a joy in that that we miss out on because we choose not to do what we're supposed yeah. to do. Well, sometimes, sometimes there's a joy in it. I don't find that boring. Yeah, but I think reality is that sometimes there's a joy in it. Sometimes it's not that easy to follow the Lord. It's, you you have to make a decision, and your heart aches because you have to make that decision to glorify God, uh, it, it, and that you, you know you have sever sever a relationship, or you have to do this and the other thing. The immediate thing that you experience is not joy, right? So so their joy may be there at times, but it's not necessarily there all the time. Sure, and but the process of being obedient isn't necessarily easy. Right. And, and I, I agree with you that joy isn't part of making that decision, but knowing that in obedience you're pleasing God, and that because He loves us, there's a grace that's going to flow. Correct. Yes, I just don't want to be uh, selling something that it's not the accurate experience, right? Because if your measure for obedience is joy, you may not have the right measure, right? Because Jesus was not super joyful at Gethsemane when he committed to actually do, obey what the Father had put before, before him, right? So that we're going, if it's about joy, we're going to set that aside. Okay, go ahead. Um, is discipleship also a means to prepare us for the work that we're going to do in heaven? Or I mean, I don't think so. So when they talk about um, the master that gave so much money and he invested it. Yeah. So, so, I, so I, uh, heaven or eternal life is not going to be playing harps in, oh, pillow, in, in cloudy pillows. Uh, it's going to be work. Right. But at, at, at the resurrection, we all are going to become like Jesus Christ. And if discipleship is the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ, then that 
is not going to take place anymore. Uh, the, the one work that seems to be clearly described as far as what we're doing in eternal life is worshiping. Right. So that's going to be a lot of what we're going to be doing is worshiping the Lord. And we're going to continue to learn about the Lord, but not in the sense of becoming more, more morally like Him. But since God is infinite, we can be in heaven for 10 trillion years and still have more of God to figure out, right? And I think that in the eternal state, it's going to be a physical state, so there will, that there's a possibility there will, be, there will be wood for Jerry to split. There will be, you know, the, the upkeeping and so on and that was there in the garden prior to the fall. So, so there was work, physical work in the garden prior to the fall. And since the eternal life is a recreation of a perfect heaven and earth, there might be those kind of things as well. Anything else but not about heaven and earth? <laughs> Katie. Yeah, yeah, the goal. The goal, yeah. Yes. So it's unity in the faith, so it's not like a subjective, well, I believe in Jesus, but the content of doctrine, right? So the more we're a disciple like Jesus Christ, the more we're going to be united in what the Bible teaches in tr- that is true. Uh, because I'm a Presbyterian, I believe that means m- movement towards that, right? I may be wrong, I don't believe I am, because then if I believe I was wrong and still hold, that, hold to that, then I'll be crazy. But there's a possibility, right? Because sin still taints my mind. But I think that's what it means, uh, 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 becoming more and more of a same mind. Yes? So my second question to that is then, if you have the motivation to be discipling and talking about the differences in our belief systems, but then it doesn't lead to a peaceful atmosphere, which is the next point, I think. So one was unity in the face. Two was maturity. Growing into being all that Christ has, has for us. So the fullness of Christ. Yeah. If it's not producing that peacefulness, should we have that as a motivation when we're talking with other brothers and sisters in Christ who we know are kind of like shut off those ideas? Does that make sense? So should we have as a motivation? I got that part. What is that we should have as a motivation that you're asking? So, uh, yes, indirectly. Um, instead of let's, let's now work through Calvin's Institute, let's work through Ephesians. Does it make sense? And let's read it together. And so, and, and let's go through chapter one. And whatever translation you use, you're going to have a version of elected or predestined. But what does that mean? That's just, you know, I think that. But don't pull out your confession of faith. I wouldn't if there's a, yeah. Yeah, and you don't have to pull out the confession. That's the beauty of memorizing things, right? You can work catechism answers as you, yeah, you're talking. You know, yeah, sin is bad because sin is really a transgression of the very law that God's given us, or our lack of keeping it. You know, you don't have to say. But question number fourteen asks, "What is uh, sin?" 
know what I'm saying? So, yes, I, I would be, I, I, we want to be scripture-driven in, in, in every situation, but specifically in situations where we know that there is disagreement. Uh, because at the end, if we keep on asking, what does the Bible say, what does the Bible say, uh, people will end up arguing, if they still argue, they'll be arguing with the Bible and the Holy Spirit instead of us. Does that make sense? Yeah, All right. Uh, man. Sorry. No, this is good. This is, uh, you know. So I'm not saying a man on you. I'm saying man at my notes. We're on page 8 of 14. So I don't think we're going to finish this particular session today. But let me ask you this question. How? How should we disciple one another? Remember, I told you this is, we're considering almost everything that we're going to consider in the whole series from a 30,000 feet um, perspective, and then we're going to develop. Now, so I think it's appropriate for us, even off the, the second lesson, asking, asking how should we disciple one another? Uh, discipleship only happens where people want to be discipled. That, that's, uh, the Jay Adams, in talking about biblical counseling, had a corny joke, but pretty much every teacher on biblical counseling repeats it because of Jay Adams who said it. Uh, and the, the, the joke is, how many counselors, biblical counselors, does it take to replace that light bulb? And the answer is just one, but the light bulb needs to be willing to be replaced. Uh, thanks. Uh, so, discipleship only happens where people want to be discipled. We often think, as we're going through this, right, I bet we, a natural tendency is to think, how can I disciple somebody? So we often think of how we should, could disciple others, but we are less likely to think of what we need to be discipled in. And since the discipleship is a mutual thing, we should be also be both thinking of how we can disciple and how we can be discipled as well. Every last one needs to be discipled. So when we answer, we answer the question, how, how should we disciple another? We need to also be asking ourselves, where do I need to be discipled? How can I be discipled? Uh, and, and so on. So we're going to stop here since we have 20 seconds left. And we'll pick up here next week, Lord willing, with the question, how should we disciple one another? Keep in mind that that also means that we are seeking to be discipled ourselves. Any last questions or comments before we close? All right, so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a God who has not left us alone, and that you sovereignly preserve us to the end. And you use as means of that preservation each other. We thank you that we have people in our lives who are willing to point us to Christ. We pray that we will be doing the same, and we pray to strengthen us in the hard but godly and God-glorifying work of discipling one another. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.